We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Coachable Podcast. Around here, we believe that life is the ultimate training ground for finding out what you are truly made of. I'm your host, Tori Gordon, high performance coach and breathwork facilitator. And each week, I share intimate conversations and inspirational stories from some of the world's most successful people. It's time to stop standing on the sidelines of your life and get your head and your heart back in the game. So take a seat, grab a pen, because you're going to want to take notes as I pull back the curtain on the tools, resources, and inspiration that you need to unlock your inner champion. So today I have the incredible honor of interviewing a spiritual mentor of mine. She is a New York Times bestseller. She's a political activist and somebody whose work, Marianne, your work has transformed my life and the lives of of millions of other people. So I just want to start by thanking you and acknowledging you for your work and how transformative it has been on my life personally. I don't know if you remember this, but um, back in 2019, you and I met at an event uh, that, that you were running for your political campaign at the time here in Atlanta. And I had recently reread A Return to Love with my dad. And it was so present for me at that point. And I found out right before you were to speak in Atlanta that you were going to be here. And I grabbed my camera really quickly and I ran down to the event center. And there you are, you and your campaign manager walked right in. And I didn't even know if I was really allowed to be there with my camera, but I just started shooting and they ended up asking me to, to film you. And I got to, wow. to meet you briefly that day. And um, I'm just very excited to have this conversation, especially given all that's going on in the world. I think it's so timely and needed to have your perspective. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor to hear you say those things. And I'm glad to know that we have that history between us that I wasn't even aware yeah. of. So thank you. Well, you meet many people, but it, it definitely made an impact on me. And I want to just first ask, I guess, how are you today? Happy Friday. I'm, I'm doing really Good. well, thank you. I think it's in many ways a sad time mm-hmm. for all of us. The um, Afghanistan situation particularly hit me, but that's true of everybody that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, within that, there are ways to find peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that peace, there are ways to help. Yeah, And that's uh, where I'm um, geared and like I said so is everybody that I know yes 
Certainly. And, you know, when I think about your work um, and the impact that it's had on me and my own um, ability to heal and find peace in the midst of significant trauma, um, after losing my mother and my sister, I can't imagine, and I can only imagine, I guess, um, how things might have been differently if if my mom was able to to read your work. And um, and I know that my sister, who who was um, really dedicated her life to to the type of work that you are involved with, is something she would have, have loved as well. A return to love um, significantly helped me to. Um, really bridged the gap between a lot of the the biblical principles that I had been taught that were wrapped in so much fear and shame that I didn't, um, couldn't really come to grips with. And it was like the way that you, you wrote about it from obviously reflections in a course of miracles. It was for the first time, these, these principles and these stories made, made sense to me and they were tangible and real and applicable to me. Um, and, with that said, I'm just uh, wondering for you, um, I guess, what is overall like the, the message that you want people to take away right now, even if they haven't read the book, um, this idea of, of walking away and releasing the fear that we have held and that we've been programmed to, to believe in and to have faith in, because you say in that the book that we there's no faithless person. We either have faith in fear or faith in love. Um, what do we do as a society to begin to release our faith in fear and to step into um, the faith and trust in, in love and truth? That's not a change we can make as a society. That's a change we make as individuals, which then has a collective effect on the society. You know what you were just talking about uh, in terms of your own background? Mm-hmm. A Course in Miracles does use these traditional Christian terms, but in very non-traditional psychotherapeutic ways, which is why so many of us who don't even come from Christian backgrounds relate to them so so much and why so many people like yourself who do come from Christian backgrounds feel like, oh my goodness, now I can understand this without the dogma, without the doctrine in a way that I can find more applicable to my life in a practical way. So that we are all learning that there are universal spiritual themes, whether we see them from a Christ-centered perspective or not, that transform us individually. And all that's going on in the society is a collection, the, the reflection of the collection of individual thoughts and actions on the part of millions and millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to change the society unless we change as individuals, but that doesn't mean that that's all we have to do is change as individuals. Mm-hmm. Because as we do change, as we do realize the purpose of our lives is to love. That's why we're here, love one another. That's why we're here. We are beings of love. We are here to love one another. That so radically transforms how we inhabit any situation. And then we begin to apply it more and more universally. Well, how does that apply to my marriage? How does that apply to my relationship with my children? How does that apply to my work? How does that apply to my relationship with employees, employers? How does, where where do boundaries come in? Where does accountability come in? What exactly does forgiveness mean? What exactly is my purpose on the earth? How can 
might be used by God as an instrument of love. And then on the societal level, it means we also have to look at the lovelessness. Take, for instance, the climate catastrophe. And it is a catastrophe that we're in the middle of right now. We have behaved so lovelessly towards the earth. Yeah. We have behaved without reverence towards the earth, without sense of moral responsibility to the earth, yeah. as we have similarly behaved lovelessly towards animals, as we similarly behave lovelessly towards people in other countries, as we similarly have behaved lovelessly towards one another. So we have our individual experience, but then we also realize being a citizen is part of my individual experience. So I think we're all moving through so many corners of our own experience where we're asking very deep questions. Where have I been in it for myself? Where have I been in it without thinking of other people? Where have I been in it from a harsh place, from a judgmental place? And where can I now transform? Mm. The times are very difficult. So these principles are not only what helps us endure these times, but even perhaps more importantly, they help us transform these times. And that's what we have to do. So when you say, what does the society need to do We need to, first and foremost, what do I have to do as a citizen of this society? Now, what's exciting to me, Tori, is that you and I are among millions of people asking this question today as we speak. This is the zeitgeist of this moment. The, the, The almost silver lining of some of the terrible things that are happening is how many people are going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. What's been happening for the last 40 years? We thought people were handling these things. And it's an awakening, frightening in ways. But the issue is to not let us, you know, we have to look at the mirror, not only in our own lives, which we know from our own experience teaches us we have to do at some point. But we're having to do that as citizens of this country and of this world. The issue is don't go into paralysis, don't go into cynicism, don't go into disconnection, don't go into depression, don't go into anxiety. Stay with me, stay awake. This is the role we have to have with one another. And we are going to grow as people and we're going to change this thing. So it's an exhilarating time, even though in some ways it's a brutal time. You're so right. I think on some level, at least those in my community, we all understand that if it's going to change, it has to start within each one of us. And to your point about the planet, I mean, the the planet's crying out for us to save it um, in a lot of ways. And the world is in need of healing. You say in your book, um, we, we say God sent help and he sent us. Um, how do we begin to um, put love and faith into action. I think something I've seen in the spiritual community, and I love your take on this, is um, a disconnection from being sometimes an active participant in being the change that we want to see, especially for those listening in this community, the young people of the world. How do we activate them to really activate their their faith, to get involved, um, to be the change instead of waiting for a system to, to change on its own or just hoping and praying that things naturally uh, get better? That's a very naive and immature perspective, and we need to call each other on that and stop coddling it. It's ridiculous. The system is doing what we're allowing it to do. If people are in office who vote uh, to protect the fossil fuel industry as opposed to protecting the earth, <laughs> 
then that's what we're going to get. If you vote for people who want to uh, push back against overreach by fossil fuel companies in order to have environmental policies that protect the earth, that's an entirely different outcome. So excuse me, you gotta vote. They're going to be, they're going to be, uh, midterm elections next year, a little over a year from now. And there is a distinct difference. There is a distinct difference, uh, and, and everybody has a, a congressional representative who's going to be running and, and to actually look at people's policies, to look at people's voting records, even hear what they say. There are people who take climate change seriously, and there are people who don't. Yeah. So to say we love the earth, you know, it's one thing to recycle. It's one thing to do what we can on an individual level. But when you talk about the deepest, uh, darkest forces of devastation and degradation of the earth, these have to do with huge economic and political policies. And that has to do with who's in office. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with uh, getting involved. Yeah. And knowing not, not, not everybody has a Senate election next year because that's staggered, but everybody has a congressional election next year. Mm -hmm. And who is in charge is going to make all the difference in terms of environmental policy. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. So what I'm hearing you say is just on a practical level is just getting involved, obviously going to vote, doing your research to, to understand uh, what the issues are, whether it's because the world is in chaos right now, with whether it's racial injustice, political upheaval, um, obviously the climate, uh, everything that's happening in Afghanistan, the war on, on, I mean, the abortion law that was just passed in Texas, there's so much happening. Um, and I think it's easy to, I wouldn't say easy, but there are, it's the temptation to um, disassociate and kind of just say, I yes. can't, you know, I can't, take all of this on and I'm curious well you better what you know what I mean well I'm curious what you think <laughs> yeah. about that because it's exactly even if it's not our There's, responsibility or even if it's not our fault it is still our responsibility absolutely that is the point and the issue is that nobody who is the citizen of an advanced democracy whether the United States or any other gets to get away with saying I don't have any power we have tremendous power and there are people who are actually using this misappropriation of spiritual principle to justify disconnection from the kind of activism this will that will change that there is no spiritual or religious tradition anywhere that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings so like like I said, we need to stop coddling that in ourselves and in each other. We are not little girls, Tori. Mm -hmm. We are grown women. And there are too many women in this country acting like little girls and thinking like little girls. There are too many grown men in this country acting like little boys and, and, and uh, thinking like little boys. This, you know, our generation, neither mine nor yours, had this kind of huge coming of age experience like my parents' generation did, for instance, with World War II. It's, it's a rolling initiation that's happening right now. Snap out of it. That's really what we need to be with yeah. each other. Snap out of it. And, 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 and I think part of that is a refusal, uh, to, uh, to, to, to show false respect for that when we hear it in other people. You know, I remember, one of the more transformative moments in my own life when I was a young woman was when somebody just looked at me, just like, who are you? 
They, they, it wasn't, it, it was just, I was acting like a child. I was talking some, it was saying something immature, selfish, narcissistic, whatever. And I remember the look on that person's face. It wasn't even they, anything they said. It was like, it was just, they were turned off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, like at a certain point, you want to be respected by people who you respect. And this is a global challenge. We are talking now, Tori. Tori, have you had children? No, I haven't. Not yet. Would Do you want to someday have children? I do. And I also have um, uh, fears around that, just given the the state of the world. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's how dire. You know, when I ran for president, I used to say in every, maybe I said it the night you heard me, I used to say to audiences, how many of you have either said or have heard a young person say, under other circumstances, I would have a child, but given the state of the world, I'm afraid to bring someone into it. And no matter where I was in this country, several hands at least would go up. And I would say to people, please look around the room. Something is really wrong here. Now, not everybody is meant to have a child. Everybody, not everybody wants to have a child. But when you have people who under normal circumstances would and are thinking this world is too scary, something is really wrong. Okay? Something is really wrong. No one gets to sit this out. No one gets to sit this out. All of us, and this is what I mean by we need to stop showing respect for, mm-hmm. I don't know. No, 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 no. You do know, and you are a grown person. Mm-hmm. And we're, this is the generation that needs to change this, wake up, show up, stand up, and then there is nothing we can't do. Right. I remember a woman years ago, there was a woman, and she was talking about, uh, there was some political issues or something, and she said, I just don't know. I don't know how to find out about it. I don't know what to do. I said, I have watched you. I have watched you get online. You want a size four pearl encrusted Donna Karen year 2001 bustier and you wouldn't stop until you found it. Do not tell me you do not know how to search the internet. Yep. Hello, girls. Right? It's like, no, 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 no. We got to think of well, it like that become, would be We become FBI agents when we go through a breakup. Exactly. It's like, exactly. You know. I, need the, I need the Sephora. I need, I need the Armani base in 5.5, not 5. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. We need to, you know how, you know how to get what you want. Yeah. Just get what we need. As much as you get what you well, want. Well, I think... It's what we need is as important as what you completely. want. Completely. I think it is um, there... It's comfort. Uh, it's comfortable not engaging with these things. But it's a perverse comfort zone. It's a, it's a perverse comfort zone mm-hmm. that's based on the trauma that you mm-hmm. were mentioning, that's based on woundedness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's places where we are subconsciously in reaction to wound, and because it's not healed, we are becoming perpetrators of the wound. Oh. Yes. <clears throat> there are places within us where we were wounded. And when we are not healed of that wound, we can subconsciously become people who simply perpetuate the wound, who pass it on, not only by perpetuating it in our own lives, but by perpetrating that same transgression on other people in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. We can, due to hurt and trauma, disconnect 
from our own agency. Because oftentimes when we were traumatized, that's what the trauma trauma did to us. It took away from us. It was an experience in which we were denied our agency, Mm -hmm. our full strength and power. And that's what we are now challenged to reclaim. And I think for many of us, you included, me included, the spiritual work has been so important because a lot of that deep healing cannot be done just on an intellectual basis. Yeah. You talk, came back around to trauma and, um, as a trauma informed facilitator, when I was going through my training, I, um, was taught that a hallmark of trauma is often choicelessness and is, I'm sorry, is often choicelessness. Yeah, exactly. And so reclaiming our sovereignty is in some part recognizing that we have a choice in the matter now um, of how we address it. But what can, mm -hmm, and what can happen, of course, well, two things. First of all, we have a a default position, Mm -hmm. a a perverse comfort zone of powerlessness, and also a a kind of emotional paralysis Mm -hmm. that can occur, almost like an emotional muscle cramp where even when we say, I want to speak, we can't find our voice. Even when we say, I I want to act, Mm. we can't get ourselves to act. And that's where God's healing comes Mm. in. When my sister was diagnosed with leukemia, I was 18, she was 21 at the time. And it was very unexpected, of course. And I remember at that point, my dad sat us down as a family and he said, we have a choice, hope or despair. And as a family, we're going to choose hope. And that was the first time I think consciously that I can remember that it dawned on me that I had a, I had a choice that how I wanted to perceive this situation that we were experiencing. And it set the tone for how we, how we move forward as collectively. And that planted a seed in me in the work that I do today, that, um, what you describe as a miracle is this shift in perception um, about maybe how do we move forward after crisis or in the midst of crisis? How do we allow ourselves to sift through those, um, traumatic or, or, you know, painful experiences and alchemize those, you know, for those that are suffering right now, because there are so many that are, what do you say to those people that say, where is God in all of this? First of all, I'm so sorry about your sister. Thank you. A few months ago, we lost my great niece, Mm. uh, 21 years old, to leukemia. Actually, she just turned 20. Turned 20 or 21. And her mother, like your father, that was very good parenting. Mm -hmm. And my my niece, uh, Elisa's mother, was very much like your father. She was such a leader. We are choosing Mm -hmm. hope. We are hoping to get through this. And while obviously in your sister's case, as well as in Mm -hmm. ours, we did end up losing the people that we love. We know that in life there are seasons that are sometimes agonizing. I wrote a book called Tears to Triumph, and at the beginning about spirituality and depression. And at the beginning of that book, I quoted a line from uh, René Rilke, the poet, where he said, let me not squander the hour of my pain. There are seasons of life. And grief is one of those seasons. Grief is not dysfunctional. Grief is functional. It's the way the mind and the heart, the spirit can integrate 
an experience that otherwise would be so devastating and such a huge shock to the system that we wouldn't get through it. I think in a case like yours, when we have lost someone, particularly a young person, and I lost my sister as well, you go forward, as I'm sure you feel in many ways, not only living your own life force, but in many ways living for your sister. Mm-hmm. Carrying forward, you know, when people die, often they leave their books to one person, they leave their jewelry to another person, they leave their clothes to another person. But I think also they leave, I'm leaving my brilliant intelligence to you. I'm leaving my, I'm leaving my great sense of humor to you. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving, le- I'm uh, leaving my gentleness or my forget my capacity to forgive to you. And I think we take in you, what did, what was there in the life force of my sister that is no longer present on the planet, but I'm going to take mm-hmm. it on until we meet again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take it on and I'm going to live that for both of us. Yeah. Those are the kinds of profound transformations that are going on in everyone right now, but they all exist within the category of how can this pain make me a better person? Mm -hmm. How can ultimately I become more than I would have been? Among other things, I think suffering gives you x-ray vision into the suffering of others. Uh, I lost a sibling. You lost a sibling. You will for the rest of your life, understand the pain of those who lost siblings in a way that you would not have. Mm -hmm. So even painful experiences can make us channels for greater love, Mm -hmm. greater compassion, greater understanding, greater tenderness. A broken heart, you know, there's a line in a Carly Simon song that she said she got from a Scott Peck book that there's there's more more room in a broken heart. And when you, when you look at so many of the problems that have been perpetrated, the Iraq war is an example, the Afghanistan war is an example, where were we as people? How could we have been so desensitized? You know, when they were, you, you, you might be a Tory too young to remember, but when they first invaded Baghdad, in the run-up to that war, I couldn't believe how many people clearly were not registering what that meant. All these bombs, fire raining down on people just like us, women just like you and me, who could not protect our families, our homes, ourselves. And I was thinking how desensitized we are to the pain of others. So the only way we could be that desensitized to the pain of others is if we're desensitized to our own pain. And once we go through enough of our own suffering, we can't, we never look at the pain of others again the same. Yeah. And perhaps that's obviously what's needing to happen now in many ways. Yeah, that's been my... So you're. So it's like, I think all of us need to look at this just like your father said to you, where are you going to go with this? Because yeah. we're a choice. You're going to let this bring you down? You're going to just go into anxiety, depression, all these uh, initials after your name and say, you know, people said they have an anxiety disorder. The world has an anxiety disorder. Okay. And not just you who has an anxiety disorder. We're all anxious. Okay. And for good reason. Yeah. The issue is who are we going to be because of it? Right. Right. And that's, that's the thing. I, I would not be where I am doing the work that I'm doing because I, I feel like, so much of my suffering 
required me to be in, you know, I was in a, in a group I didn't ask to be in, you know, um, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, but because I've met myself at that depth, I can see that depth in others and I can help other people access that. And yet there's so many people who see what's going on in the world are experiencing their own suffering and they're angry about it. And they're, um, in many ways, righteous, like rightfully so, um, you write in a return to love that you spent years as an angry left winger um, until you realize that an angry generation can't bring peace, that everything we do is infused with the energy with which we do it. Um, how do we, as we are processing all that we're experiencing and allowing ourselves to be in the discomfort or the pain or the grief that we're experiencing, how can we not um, fall into the trap of becoming angry or trying to create change from that place and therefore kind of spreading more of the thing that we're actually trying to abolish? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that that is the task. And if you have a daily spiritual practice, prayer, meditation, you are literally allowing divine celestial forces help you do that. You have to decide, no matter what you've been through, you know, I used to say to audiences, with COVID, I haven't been out there lecturing. But over the last few years, I used to say to audiences, imagine the greatest pain that you have ever been through. And I'd give people a minute to do that, okay? So you got that, right? said, now, hear me when I tell you this. It is statistically reasonable to assume that the person to your right has suffered that much too. It is statistically reasonable. It is statistically probable that the person to your left has suffered that much too. It is statistically probable that the person behind you has suffered that much too. It is statistically probable that the person in front of you and behind you has suffered that much too. You know, there's a famous line, I think it was Victor Hugo, whenever you meet someone, know you're in the presence of a great war. Our suffering takes individual forms, but most of us are suffering. And when you, and I, and I would say, when you look around the room and you just think about that, and people would look around and I go, it's a different room to you now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a different room to you. Yeah. And that right there, and the compassion and the gen- who among us could not use greater tenderness from those around us, greater understanding from those around us, yeah. greater gentleness from those around us, greater forgiveness and mercy from those around us. And we, on a spiritual level, only get to receive what we give. Mm. So, and that's why in Tears to Triumph, I talk about the noble truths of Buddha, the discipline, right action, right speech. Mm. If we, in the midst of our pain, indulge the worst aspects of ourselves, it will deflect the help we need. It will deflect the kindness from others that we're really craving. Mm. So that's what a spiritual path helps us do. That's what podcasts like this help us do. That's the conversation in the culture, how to endure and also transform these painful times. Yeah. So true. 
It's so true. I um I think about this act of surrender um that I've felt viscerally in my body through different practices of of breath work and conscious movement and meditation. Um but then this broader perspective of surrender that you call kind of an act of non-resistance or giving up attachment to results because it's so easy to, to feel like we're so desperate um, for, for change. We're so desperate for change in our lives from maybe I just need, I need to make more money. I need to be able to put food on the table. I need to be able to take care of my kids. I need to be able to, to deal with this diagnosis or on a broader, larger scale, we need change now. Um, would you say that obviously doubling down on our spiritual practices and that's the spiritual path is also um, learning to surrender the <clears throat> attachment to our desperation that feels so intense uh, right now? I think, well, I don't think we should make ourselves wrong for our despair. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't think the answer lies in, you know, stopping desperate, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, that's a little brutal towards ourselves. But I do think there's an element here of realizing that things are so much harder for people than they need to be in the richest country in the world. Mm -hmm. The root of a lot of what you just said lies in economic um, injustice. Uh, If everybody, for instance, when COVID started, this country could have just given $2,000 a month to everybody until this was over. If people had their college loans, if people weren't shackled by their college loans, if people could go to college for free, if people didn't have health care bills, so much of the despair that you're mentioning is because people are living in chronic tension, economic tension and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm the first person to say we've got to we've got to pray and meditate. But what I saw in my career, you know, when I first started lecturing on A Course in Miracles, which was 38 years ago, mm-hmm. I had the privilege story the privilege of being there for people whose lives were in trouble because of situations such as your sister's death, AIDS, things that were really just these things that happen in everyone's life and like, wow. Mm. But I started seeing a change about 15 or 20 years ago. And that's how many people were in trouble who weren't in trouble because of things like that, who had done everything right, but who were living in a society where policy after policy just makes it too hard for the average person. Like you were saying, fear of having a child mm-hmm. because uh, uh, because you don't know what the environment is going to be like, or having children who are experiencing such things as, as asthma at such high rates because of environmental pollution. Mm-hmm not being able to be in the job that you really want to be because you have to be in the job you don't want to be because uh, because they have the health insurance benefits. And then we, we, we call the chronic anxiety that's produced by all these things mental health issues. Mm-hmm. These are not mental health issues. The mental health issues are on the part of the people who are passing these sociopathic, soulless, loveless policies that are keeping millions and millions and millions of people in pain. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to change this. Nobody's going to change this but us. You know, when you look at the UN climate report and when you look at what happened in Afghanistan, we need to wake up 
and recognize that the prevailing economic and political and even military authorities in this country have not only ill-served us over the last 40 years, they have harmed us. And like other generations who have been through tough times, we have to rise up. And that starts with voting. It starts with political activism. But as the Dalai Lama says, in order to save the world, we must have a plan, but no plan will work unless we meditate. Mm. It's both and. Sometimes people say, is it the inner work or is it the external work? Well, the external work is just a reflection of the internal work. But at this point, the problems are so extreme on the external, you have to work on both. And you know what? There are a lot of hours in the day. You meditate, you pray, you do your spiritual work, you take care, you do yoga, you exercise, you eat well, and then you go out and kick ass. Mm -hmm. You do both. Yeah. Because otherwise this world will not change in time. Yeah. I mean, just having that conversation around children and thinking, you know, just actively speaking out the fear that I have and then having my mind process that as I'm saying it and thinking, okay, well, that's more work for me to do around moving out of fear and back into love, right? Because I'm letting that rule me. And what is your- But you know what? I'm no, sorry. No, please continue. Yeah. What is your thought? Because that's what, what's happening in my train of thought as I'm thinking, this is somewhere that I, my thinking is based in fear, which is, is not reality. It's showing up as truth for me in this 3D experience, but how it can feel like, oh my gosh, there's so much fear to unlearn or to, to release that how, well, how am I going to live my life? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The perspective of the Course in Miracles is that fear is to love what darkness is to light. Mm -hmm. You don't analyze the darkness. Mm -hmm. You don't hit it with a baseball bat. You turn on the light. Mm -hmm. You don't analyze your fear process. I mean, there's a certain point where processing becomes spewing. There's a certain point where the processing just becomes self-indulgence in a narcissistic circle. You turn on the love. I got to do this for my kids. I have to do this for other people's kids. Tori, you live in Atlanta. Georgia is a hotbed. Excuse me. Some, uh, you want to talk about policies that harm children? You want to talk about policies that harm children? You look at the policies that are now, uh, uh, promulgated by some of the congressional people and senatorial people, local and federal in your state, you could be someone so powerful and so helpful. Mm. It's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's a stark difference. And I speak this, I consider myself at this point, basically an independent. I think both political parties have so much to answer for, but I'm sorry on these issues. One is infinitely better than the sure. other. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. I completely agree with you. I mean, I see, you know, one thing I've, I've come to learn and I think all of life is, is school. That's why I call my brand, my podcast, everything's about being coachable, being willing to learn how to do something better. Um, I, I never <coughs> want to be the person who, you know, is thinking they're the smartest person in the room. I always say, if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. Um, I want to be learning from others, uh, who are doing the things I want to do or, or, talking about having the conversations that I think are impactful. Um, and so I, I see life as kind of this school to come in and to learn lessons. Um, and many of us will learn a lot of those and many more of us, us won't. What do you think are the primary lessons that we must learn as a species, uh, as a country, but just really as individuals in order to experience the, the peace and the love, um, the world that, that we, we hope to have. We must learn to forgive and we must learn to love each other. Mm. 
The Course in Miracles says that everyone has a highly individualized curriculum. Every situation is a lesson. Mm. Every relationship is a lesson. Every circumstance is a lesson. And it's a lesson that is offered us. Where you've, been, where you've gotten it good before, do it even better. Where you didn't do it so well before, why don't you do it right this time? Mm. And the Course in Miracles also says, it's not up to you what you learn. It's merely up to you whether you learn through joy or through pain. We will learn. We will learn it through joy. We will learn it through pain. You're going to take care of your environment and, and stop the madness of the fossil fuel industry. Then we're going to be able to mitigate this. You're going to not learn the lesson. Expect more hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Expect more floods. Expect more tornadoes. Yeah. Expect more of the insanity. Mm-hmm. You know, when you and I were children, we learned about how evolution works. Mm-hmm. And we learned that when a species is behaving in a way that is maladaptive for its survival. Something is going to happen. It will, a mutation will occur and it will evolve in a new direction or it will go extinct. Species go extinct and this one could as well. Mm -hmm. And we are on a trajectory right now of such collective self-destruction. Most Americans aren't dealing with the fact the United States alone has 7,000 nuclear bombs. Right. Okay, now, I see the great religious figures, Jesus, Buddha, Moses, etc. I see them as the example, the mutation. Mm. They are displaying for the for the human race, for this species. There's another way we could do this. Mm. We could let love rather than money run the show. We could let humanitarian principles rather than economic principles guide us. And individual, and if we do that, we will move in a different direction. Mm. And that is what we must learn to do. On 9-11, if, if, if you said to me, Marianne, who of all the people you've known in your life, name five people who are the kindest, sweetest, most wonderful, most fabulous examples of humanity. And if you wanted uh, people in the world to say, oh, that's what an American is, tell me the five people. One of them would have been my friend Barry, who died on one of the planes on 9-11. She was a great individual, couldn't have been more spiritual or more beautiful, but we're all reaping collective karma right now. Mm-hmm. I think we can all sense none that. Of us can, none of us can buffer ourselves. You know, you talk about, about health and children, you can drink green juice and you can be gluten-free. Mm-hmm. You can do all this stuff on an individual basis, but if they're poisoning the air and they're poisoning all the chemicals in the water, you can't wall yourself off now. So the zeitgeist of this moment is what we have to do together. It's not what they're going to do. It's what we're going to do, but we have a representative government who we vote for and who we hope to get elected. Elected matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so does. And I think there's this destruction of this old paradigm, this old way of living that's happening simultaneously while this new birth is being born. born. One world is dying and another world is being born. And we have two roles, death doula and birth doula. Mm. We have to be those who are helping that which is falling apart, fall apart more tenderly, Mm. like taking care of all these people who are in the path of the hurricane. Mm. Right? And being being mothers being 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 just like a a woman when she has a child your womb 
is 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 where you know the the child emerges from our consciousness is the womb of this new world mm-hmm. because it won't be enough young people like yourself in order for the species to continue young people are going to have to continue enough of them to have children but if we don't create a more a wiser world then it won't be safe for children to come in and that consciousness the consciousness's womb is true of us no matter what age we are mm. And that's a kind of beautiful, what they, what do they call it these days, intergenerational, mm. uh, what you and I are doing here right now. Yeah, I know it. I, I love this. And I'm thinking it's, I mean, it's the human condition just being reflected back to us every single day. You know, there's, there's people dying and, and babies being born in the same moment. And it's this death and birth that's happening at the same time. And it's sometimes hard to, to wrap your head around and you were just mentioned wisdom how do you think we become wise because I think we we're taught all the time that knowledge is power and I see in my clients in my community I tell people knowledge isn't power <laughs> that uh, applied knowledge we have to apply it we have to integrate it we have to use it but how do we become wise Marian? power without love is not wise. Mm. Power without love is brutal and self-destructive. Mm. You know, one of the things we need to stop doing is saying that the United States has the most powerful military in the world. Yeah. We just lost three wars in a row. The most forceful. But we sent men and women to die, American soldiers to die, having been led by military and even more so civilian leadership, which had no wisdom in the war planning. It was simply the application of brute force and more brute force and more brute force without the wisdom to really look at who the people were there. You know, after the Vietnam War, uh, many years after, not long before he died, the main architect of that war, then Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, said these words. We didn't know anything about the Vietnamese people. We didn't know anything about their religion, their culture, their history. And that's exactly the mistake we made in Afghanistan. Our soldiers behaved so bravely, but we were propping up a corrupt government. We weren't thinking about who the Afghans, who the Afghans were. The more you read, it's sickening. What is wisdom? It's empathy. It's caring about people. It's reverence. What we're doing to the planet so that the fossil fuel companies can make more billions and billions and billions of dollars profits while we're giving them $26, $30 billion in subsidies a year. No reverence for the earth. No devotion. No sense of morality. That's where wisdom comes from. No sanctity. No sacredness. No sanctity. And we have to, the world has been desacralized and we must resacralize it. And that's why prayer and meditation is so important because prayer and meditation is like the yoga of consciousness. It's just like with yoga, you work on the correct positioning Mm -hmm. of your body. You worked on the correct positioning of your mind. The correct positioning of your mind is this is not just all about me. (laughs) The correct positioning of, of the mind is I'm, I'm meant to be in collaboration with everyone else. Mm. You know, like the cells in the body collaborate with other cells to serve the healthy functioning of the organ. Right. 
sometimes a cell disconnects from its natural intelligence, goes off to do its own thing. That's what cancer is. And that destroys the organ. And that is what has happened to the human race. We have been infected by a malignant thought that it's all about me, that we're separate from each mm-hmm. other. That is the essence of the lack of wisdom. Yes. The wisdom means behaving in a way that contributes to the love that will heal the world. Mm. Yeah. None of us are there 100%. I mean, you know, we're not enlightened masters. Mm. But you live life in a different way when you begin each day knowing that's the purpose of your life right. and you can at least try. Yeah, yeah. I... um I've made it a practice of mine as I started after I read your book and I started reading A Course in Miracles, which I have not finished in total yet, but um, is is just asking to be useful, uh, just being asked, ask, asking to be used <coughs> that what I what I am and what I can give would be used for for good and for the highest highest good of all. You know, my husband is um an immigrant from Venezuela and you were talking about um, how we shouldn't be so arrogant as a country to think it couldn't happen to us. And, um, you know, he always reminds me, he's like, we used to think that never, it would never happen here. Um, That's exactly right. He could not be more correct. Uh, As a Jew, I feel that way very strongly. Um, we used to say to my parents, well, how, you know, how could they let that happen? And things are happening today uh, far too similarly. The rise of authoritarianism around the world and how many Americans don't seem to realize how horrible authoritarianism is. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also uh, something that you were saying before. I'm sorry, I can't even remember what it was. I was going to say to something that you said. It's okay. They might come to you. Um, we're we're kind of bouncing around, but ultimately, I feel like this this through line of what we're talking about is uh, transformation. Um, of course, it and is. I know that that's um, the new name of your podcast, and and ultimately the cornerstone of your work. Um, you know. What are you working on right now that that people can can get involved with? I know you okay. have a Substack that is yeah. amazing, and I would like to Thank to you. tell people Thank how you. how they can learn more and and what it is that that Thank you're you. really working on. Um, right Thank now. you. Well, first of all, I remember what I was going to oh, say, and that was in response. So you're talking about the prayer, your mm-hmm. your prayer when you wake up in the morning. There's a prayer in a Course in Miracles where you wake up in the morning and say, "Where would you have me go?" Mm-hmm. What would you have me do? What would you have me say? And to whom? That's alignment, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I have, um, in response to your question, I have uh, put the daily lessons of A Course in Miracles uh, on video with me reading them with a little lesson of each one. People can find that at Marianne.com. My new substack at MarianneWilliamson.substack.com is a way that I can send people daily posts about one day it's meditation, another day it's what really happened in Afghanistan. Uh, One day it's about forgiveness. Uh, One day it's about something else going on in politics and society. I think that the message 
that we have to do both resonates with a lot of people. Mm. But a lot of people are like, well, I, I've been working on my personal stuff. I don't know anything about the other. Right. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, my feeling is, well, I'll teach you. Other people have been working on the political and they realize it's burning me up. I'm becoming this angry thing. And I know I do the personal, right. but where do I start? Yep. So I hope my Substack is is a place where uh, people can start. And I've, you know, I have a life's work, you know, uh, my book, A Politics of Love, my book, Tears to Triumph, about depression and anxiety. Um, all of the great spiritual and religious paths teach us the same thing. This isn't an age anymore of data collection. We have the data. And most of us pretty much know the basic principles of trying to live a more loving life. The issue now is the age of application to own what we know. And that is ultimately the only appropriate response to the trauma of these times, whether it's our individual trauma or our collective trauma. It's what a more open heart is what will enable us to endure these times and ultimately to transform these times. And uh, one way or the other, we will be remembered by future generations. They'll either say, what could they possibly have been thinking? Or they will say, wow, at uh, the 11th hour, they really pulled it off, didn't mm. they? Well, let the... We can choose that one. Yeah, let the first not, let it that not be said of us. If if we can do anything about it, and, and that's what I love about your work, and obviously your Substack, everybody, please go check it out. It's the blend of both, um, and we need both, to your point. Um, and really, really committing to the application of this work because it does us no good to consume and not to apply. And that is my recommendation and my ask and my invitation to everybody listening is that you don't come and you listen to this show and you take, but if you take that you, you integrate and that you then turn around and you apply it and you give it away to somebody else, because that's how we continue to grow and move forward. And Marianne, your work is, um, such a huge contribution to that in the world. And I just thank you so much for, for you and for this conversation and um, hope that, that we'll be able to continue to say, yeah, at the end of all this, that, um, you know, we, we made a difference because. Well, thank you, Tori, right back at you. Mm. I have uh, a lot of faith in us as, uh, as American women. Yeah. Uh, Something's happening. There's a rising up of women all over the world people all over the world. And um, we're going to move the needle. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, you guys, until next time, you know what to do. Please share this with a friend. Please tag us, Marianne and myself, if you got some value from this episode. I know and trust that you did. And this will probably one be one that you likely return back to, um, but ultimately return back to love. I love you and I'll see you next week on the Coachable Podcast.
You guys, if you love this show, do me a favor. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you feel called, leave a review. I would love to hear how the show is impacting you. But not only that, be a hero to somebody and share it with somebody in your life that needs to hear it. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-Month Emergency Food Kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com